going to be kicking us off here in our Advent series, and uh, Dan is a student at Gordon-Conwell Theological Seminary, where he's studying to get his Master of Divinity, but that's not quali- what qualifies him necessarily to be up on this stage, although he does have some sweet skills that he's learned there, okay? But Dan's a man of God, and he's been a minister for a number of years at a vineyard church in this area, and he also worked with the, the CCO in Pennsylvania doing college ministry. So Dan, it's an honor to have you up here. Can't wait to hear what you're going to share. And I'm just going to, I'm going to, I'm going to give it to you and say, God bless you. Lord, fill them up in Jesus' name. Thank Take you, it away, Lord. Man. Thank you. Thank you, Lord. Well, good to be with you guys. Good morning to you. Um, listen, I, Brian said that it's an honor to have me. Well, it's really an honor for me to be here. Back when I was an undergrad at, at Gordon College, uh, a few years back now, almost a decade, which is crazy, I came to the harbor for a short season. And uh, this church and particular individuals in this church really deposited something pretty special in, into me at the time. And I can actually say that what I was given from this church really kind of impacted the trajectory of my life and, and the ministries that I've been involved in. So, so I'm grateful for the harbor, honored to be here, and for the opportunity to share with you. Uh, why don't we pray, and we're going to get just right into it. Let's pray. Lord, we honor you, God. We thank you. We just, we're grateful in this Advent season, God, where we celebrate that you've come. You've come, Jesus. Thank you, God. You're Emmanuel, God, with us. And we look forward to your coming again. God, I pray that you be with us. Lord, I pray you would open our eyes, our ears, our hearts, what you have for us, God. I pray especially that you renew your people and restore your people and encourage your people today. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I recently had an experience that I would say demonstrated for me the mess that is our human experience. And it involved toddlers. I was at a library playgroup with our three-year-old daughter, Julianne. And after the group dismissed, we were just out in the library playing. And Julianne r- really likes to kind of run away from daddy and, and hide from me. She's, she, she's really into that. And then what made matters worse is that at the time, she was really into these, this, brack, uh, this rack of brochures, which was all the way in the corner, tucked away behind a bunch of rows of books. And she was all about these brochures for some reason. So, of course, I'm trying to keep up with her and trying to keep an eye. And, and I finally get to the row that she's at the end of with the brochures. And, and I, I come around the corner. And I see that she's just in this tug of war, just back and forth with this other kid over, guess what? Brochures. That's right. So, now... After a split second, I'm looking around, and I see, what I see is she goes down on her back. She gets knocked over, and the brochures just go flying everywhere. And I'm going to keep you hanging there for right now. Well, the reason I share that story is because it seemed to me like the perfect little microcosm of the mess that we sometimes find ourselves in, right? There's pushing and shoving and coveting and, and hiding and and disobeying, and running away. And that was the scenario here with these little kids. Well, even though, fortunately, human development kind of moves us out of that impulsive, selfish, possessive toddler stage, at least for most of us, at least, uh, we in the room here, we, we still kind of experience similar things. We still, we still grasp for things that don't really matter. Or we just try to, like, hoard and collect as much stuff for ourselves to have some sense of kind of comfort, satisfaction. 
Or maybe we, 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 we hide, we try to run away from God, we pretend that we can keep certain parts of our lives out of his view. Sometimes we listen to the wrong voices and we get caught up in the wrong battles and we get ourselves in trouble. We're in a mess, whether we realize it or not. As we start this Advent season this morning, I feel like it's the perfect time to ask, does God really care? Does he actually care about this mess? How does he respond to this mess that we find ourselves in? In order to do this, we're going to look at Genesis chapter 3. And uh, we're going to look at this question there as it relates to that, these opening pages of the Bible. And Genesis 3, as many of you know, is pretty loaded. It's classically kind of referred to as the the account of the fall of, of man. And so I want to say this up front. I just want to make the disclaimer that we're not going to be able to answer every question that Genesis 3 provokes. So don't put that pressure on me. Thank you. Uh, But here's what I do want us to come away with this morning. It's that even in our mess, God promises our deliverance. Even in our mess, God promises our deliverance. So to frame this sermon, what we're going to do is we're going to look at all the major players. We're going to look at the serpent, we're going to look at Adam and Eve, and we're going to look at God. And as we do that, I think we'll learn something about each category. And so let's start by reading uh, Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, and the text will be up on the board for you. But it goes like this, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You won't surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So the first thing we see is that the serpent sets the stage for the mess. The serpent sets the stage for the mess. We can tell very clearly right away that the serpent, he's a pretty brilliant strategist. He's called cunning in the text. And what kind of strategies do we see him employ? Well, what he's up to is he's sowing doubt and confusion. Because we we see it right there in his subtle question at the beginning, did God really say? And then we see that it's followed up a few verses later by a much, much stronger, you won't surely die. So he's trying to undermine Uh, Adam and Eve's trust of God. And so in order to do that, he twists the truth. We see in verse 1 right away, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? So right away, he's spinning what God has said. But what is is actually the original commandment that God gave to Adam and Eve? What does it say? And, And what is the context for what he said? Well, we see it in chapter 2, if you want to look at verses 15 to 18. And God said, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And then the Lord God said, It's not good that the man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. 
So what's the context? The context is that God takes the man that he's lovingly and carefully created, and then he puts him in a flourishing garden, and then he gives him dignity and honor and purpose by giving him a job to take care of the garden. And then what else do we see? We see that, that not only that, God made a helper, woman, wife, a partner for the man. So this is the context for the commandment. This is a generous God. And we see that he says that you're free to eat from any tree in the garden. Any tree. Except for the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So the serpent, as we see, is trying to get Eve to fixate on the restriction of God rather than the generosity of God. We notice here, however, it's important to see that the serpent never tells the woman to sin, does he? No, he just tries to undermine her trust in God and what he has said. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, maybe you're familiar with him, he's a a famous German pastor and theologian who was part of the resistance movement against Adolf Hitler. And he has a thin little book called Creation, Fall, and Temptation, and he reflects on these verses in that book. And he helpfully points out that the best way for the serpent to attack the Christian is with God himself. What does that mean? So, in other words, Satan can't just come at us with some kind of godless attack, or he can't just come at us denying the existence of God to kind of undermine our faith. No, what Satan has to do to be effective is to twist and undermine our view of and our attitude towards God. So he does that with Eve. So we're thinking about the serpent, the role of the serpent. And really the rest of the Bible and the New Testament in particular and the theological development that we see there helps us understand this connection between the serpent and a satanic agenda of some kind. So to be fair, we don't see that in Genesis 3 itself, but as we look at the whole sweep of Scripture, it's reasonable to to make that connection. We see in Revelation 12, the Apostle John says this about the dragon, who's the image of, of Satan in that book. He says, The great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So that's a witness of the New Testament. Maybe we need to take a couple steps back because all this talk that I'm doing presents us with Satan, the reality of Satan. Some of us don't know what to do with Satan, do we? How much does he fit into our theology or into our understanding of this mess that we're in? Well, there's a theologian named Michael Green who I think said it well. He said two opposite attitudes would be equally pleasing to the devil. One, excessive preoccupation with the devil, but also two, excessive skepticism about his very existence. Why? Because through both attitudes, Satan can gain power over us, can't he? Well, if there's still skeptics in the room, it seems like we have to take Satan seriously because Jesus took Satan seriously. And the rest of the New Testament writers took Satan seriously. We see Jesus talking about him in John 8, 44. In that passage, Jesus rebukes some of the Jews who wanted to kill him and and oppose him. And he says, you belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desire. Listen to this. He was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth. 
for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is the liar and the father of lies. And then we see him, Jesus taking Satan seriously in the parable of the sower. Jesus describes some people like seed that falls on the path, the, 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 the hardened, trampled down path. And Satan comes along and snatches away the seed. So Jesus takes Satan seriously. And so does the rest of the New Testament, talking about him as a threat to the church. Well, getting practical, one of the ways that I see Satan's foothold, I think, in, in our lives is in the context of ministry around sexual purity and around pornography in particular. And one of the sentiments that kind of floats around in those circles sometimes is, particularly for guys that have battled for a long time, unable to get free, feel beaten down, is just maybe just a hopeless sense of, I'll never be free. This is just who I am. Well, that's a lie from Satan. Why? Because he tries to get us to put an identity in our sin sometimes instead of an identity in Jesus. And so that's how he works. For others of, uh, for others of us, Satan's tactic looks different. Maybe it's, maybe it's believing that, that lie in your head that God doesn't really care about you or about your efforts to try to serve him in different ways. Maybe that's something that you struggle with this morning. In addition to these lies we believe, there's just the reality of demonization, right? Big scary word, but basically just this idea that Satan's servants, his minions, just are, are active spiritually to torment certain individuals into cycles of thinking, patterns of thinking, unforgiveness, affliction. This is part of the reality of Satan's kingdom too. But whatever the angle, the point is that Satan is about bringing a breach in our relationship with God and with others and even with ourselves. So in this mess that we're in, this is our adversary. To try to describe uh, at least one notion of the work of Satan, sometimes I think about him like a disgruntled employee of a company who gets rightfully fired. Keep tracking with me. And not, hopefully not to be too trite or even heretical, I'm going to consider the boss to be God in this story. Okay, So he's been fired. Rightfully so. But he still like hangs around somehow. Maybe he goes and hangs out at the bar that the rest of the co-workers go hang out at after work. And he's just kind of a nuisance. He's just there. He wants to stir up trouble. And his whole thing is, is about trying to plant like seeds of, of doubt and cause his former co-workers to doubt and rethink reality. You know, so, so maybe he's sitting there. Maybe he says things like to his old buddies. He says things like, you know, the boss doesn't really care. He doesn't see your hard work. He's just looking out for himself. And e- even though the, 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 the employees know that he's a fraud, they know that he's been discredited, somehow those lies have power over them. Maybe in their own working experience on the job, certain things transpire and suddenly they're revisiting lies or things, false beliefs that they've heard from him. So the point is, even though he's been discredited, somehow he still has influence. Sometimes the lies are really compelling. So this is the adversary. He knocks us down. The serpent sets the stage for the mess, but next we'll see that it's the humans that really create the mess. And so we're going to carry on in Genesis 
3, verse 6, verse 6 through 13. And we pick up. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and she ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they knew that they were naked. And so they sewed fig leaves together and made for themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called on the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? And the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this that you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the text makes it clear that Adam and Eve are easily deceived. They far too quickly believe the serpent over the commandment of God. As I read this text, every time I'm reminded, and I think it's important to note this, that Adam isn't responsible with the instruction that was given to him. What do I mean by that? Well, we often think that, that Eve is culpable in this scenario, don't we? Eve ate the fruit. Well, what do we see when we go back to chapter 2? We see that Adam receives the commandment from God even before Eve was created. And so he doesn't steward the commandment. He doesn't protect his wife. And so the text tells us that Adam is there with, it, with Eve, and he takes to the fruit, and he keeps his mouth shut. He fails to protect her. Okay, so... What's, what's really going on here? Some, some of you, like me, sometimes we hear different things in Sunday school or, or, or as we understand the Bible, and we want to take a little bit deeper dive, like what is actually going on here, and that's the way I'm wired. So, so here's a little synthesis of, I think, what was going on in Adam and Eve's choice to eat the fruit. Why were they wrong? Why were they, why was this bad? Well, here's a little synthesis of what was going on here. For one, by doing this, they usurped the authority of God to determine good and evil. Somehow they were going to kind of now enter into the space where they could determine good and evil for themselves. And when we look around at society, it seems like we do a pretty poor job of determining good and evil for ourselves. Maybe you agree. They also made self-fulfillment their goal. They followed their impressions over the instruction. They took God's word as an option rather than as a given. They subjected God's word to their own judgment. In other words, oh, you know, maybe God wasn't really serious about that part. We'll just kind of forget about that. So these are some of the things going on. But what else do we see happens in this mess that Adam and Eve create? Well, we see a shift that happens in verse 8, right? So uh, they perceive that God is in their midst. They, they know he's present in the garden, and so they go and hide. And then God comes to question them. And then in his questioning of them, we see in their responses a new attitude of their hearts. And this is what else is going on. We see it with Adam, right? He says, it was the woman that you gave to be here with me. She gave me the fruit. And then God turns to Eve and Eve says, it was a serpent who deceived me. And so all of a sudden, we see this blame shifting, this hiding Shame taking over. 
This is the death that they've entered into. Sometimes as we look at, at Genesis 3, and we're honestly reading it, maybe we get this impression that the serpent seems to be right, and God seems to be wrong somehow here, right? Like, they don't actually die, do they? And we're also told that their eyes are, in fact, opened. So did God get it wrong? Well, I think another way to understand what's going on here is that death could be used metaphorically. Yes, of course, death entered the world, but there's also a metaphorical sense of what's going on. We see throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we, we see these examples where God puts in front of the people both blessing and prosperity and adversity and curse as representing life or death for them. So there's this metaphorical sense of what was going on. And that seems to be maybe the case uh, here as well. In other words, God tells them the kind of life that they will now experience as a result of their choice. Shame, hiding, blame shifting, breach in their relationships. This was death. I think if we all look closely at the text and look at our own lives, we can see our Adamness and our Eveness pretty, pretty clearly. I don't know about you, but I, there's times in my life where I'm pretty easily deceived. The values of this messed up world pull at me for some reason. They have inordinate power over me. Suddenly my priorities become my comfort or my prestige or my position or popularity or whatever it may be. And then as I look at my relationships, I see the fallenness of those two. Pretty husbands in the room, have you sometimes thought, if only my wife was like this? Or wives, have you thought, if only my husband was like this? Or students, have you thought, if only my friends or my professors or my parents were like this? Or parents in the room, have you thought, if only my kid was like this? That one got the chuckles, so that must resonate. So, this is who we are, if we're honest with ourselves. We're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Like the hymn goes. So this is the mess that they've created. This is the death we've entered into. Point is, what does God have to say about it? Is there any hope for us? Well, as we begin to look at God's place, we're going to see this. We're going to see that God enters into the mess, promises our deliverance. We recall God's actions so far, right? He enters the scene, it says, in the cool of the day. And there's some scholars that have good evidence to show that this wasn't just like a leisurely stroll in the garden in the afternoon. No, they, they, they argue that this was the first storm theophany of God in the Bible. This was God entering in, manifesting in judgment. So, in other words, God's opening question to Adam probably wasn't just something like, Adam, where are you? No, like it was probably more thunderous than that. Like God was showing up. In judgment. So that's the scene. So his presence and his intervention in this situation shows in and of itself that the transgression of the commandment really matters. So he interrogates Adam and Eve. He knows that the goodness of his created order has been disrupted. And so we're going to pick it up in Genesis 3 verse 14. And I'll read just 14 and 15 for now. 
But the Lord turned to the serpent and said to him, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So, God shows up. He declares the consequences. But who does he address first after interrogating Adam and Eve? The serpent. God doesn't just waste time messing around, questioning the serpent. He just declares that humiliation and enmity will befall him. And that one in particular would come who would crush his head, who would have a decisive victory over him. Well, who is that one? We'll hang on to that thought for a minute. But for right now, it looks like it's not very good for the serpent. So I want to pick up in in verse 16 for you. And we'll read through verse 21, just kind of in the interest of, of time and space. But he says, and, and, to, and to the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing, and pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire will be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curse is the ground because of you. In pain you will eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of, their, of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you are taken. For you are dust, and to dust you will return. So we see the consequence for Adam and Eve. They're not off the hook, obviously. God tells them that the death that they've entered into would result in hardship, particularly in the two domains that they've been given dominion over. Because in Genesis chapter 1 and 2, we see that God tells them to fill the earth and multiply, and then to subdue the earth and take care of the garden. So Adam and Eve would feel the hardship most in those places. Just a quick word about these, this, these supposed curses here, because this can be a little kind of troubling for us, right? It's important to know first that, that the serpent is actually the only one who receives a personal curse. In the context of, of Eve's situation, that language isn't even used. And then in the context of Adam's consequence, it's the land that's cursed. So I think that's important to note. And then furthermore, we see that in spite of these hardships that will now be part of their experience, we see that God still allows them to be fruitful and multiply, and that God still allows them to harvest from the, the fields. For many of us, and, and maybe particularly for women in the room who, who may experience uh, pregnancy or childbirth, this is also, it's also troubling what he says to Eve. There's a writer named Aubrey Smith who wrote a book called Holy Labor. Thanks, Bonnie Miriam, for the recommendation. And uh, she suggests this about Genesis. She, she argues that Genesis is telling us something other, perhaps, than that women will ex- experience physical pain in childbirth, childbearing. She looks at the language, and she notes that the Hebrew words here uh, for childbearing could actually be understood as conception. And then also that pain could be understood as sorrow, toil, or, or grief. And so she argues that the consequence for Eve is the fear 
that's associated with conception and childbirth and pregnancy and parenting for those of us in a fallen world in which death is a reality. So I don't know if you can see the distinction there, but she argues that it's the fear and the anxiety that arises for her. So check out her book, Holy Labor, if you want to explore that more. God enters the mess, declares the consequences, but then in verse 21, he reveals this interesting side of his own character. And it says this, And the, the, the man called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all the living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skin and clothed them. See, nakedness in the ancient world was your shame. And so God dignifies them, honors them in spite of their sin and covers them, clothes them. I'm going to bring us home to a, to a close here. And so uh, it's a good time for the band to, to come back up. But as we wind down, I want to turn our, our attention back to verse 15. Because this is the real heart of the promise for us this Advent season. Verse 15 says, And I will put enmity, this is God talking to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. The curse for the serpent means that he'll be crushed. The curse for the serpent means that one day one will come who will win a decisive victory over him. His deception, his schemes, his tactics will be just emptied of their power and he'll be destroyed. Friends, right there in Genesis 3, there's a glimmer of the hope of the gospel for us. With that in mind, I remind us of another one who was, the gospels tell us, was cast into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan. And this man arguably was faced with an even stronger and a more alluring temptation than Adam and Eve were. He was tempted with to secure for himself provision and power and prestige if only he would compromise on his mission. But friends, this was Jesus, and he passed the test. You see, while man was deceived, Jesus was strong. While Adam and Eve grasped for what was not theirs to have, Jesus laid down what was rightfully his to give us life. While it was Adam and Eve's sin that led to their alienation from God, it was Jesus' obedience which led to that moment on the cross where he cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And that while Adam and Eve unknowingly chose death for some sense of a better quality of life, Jesus chose death out of obedience to his Father to give us life. So not only did Jesus resist the schemes of Satan, his whole mission was about undermining and crushing the serpent. The Apostle John in his first letter tells us this, the reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. 1 John 3.8 What were the devil's works? Physical affliction, demonization, oppression, relational strife. The power of sin and shame over our lives. Jesus destroyed it. He dismantled Satan's kingdom. As we close, go with me back to the library scene from earlier. So there I was, looking at the mess in front of me, disobedience, pushing, shoving, hiding, and my daughter was knocked down on the ground. 
What's a good father to do in that situation? As she stood there, well, laid there looking stunned, really, I rushed over there. And I'm telling you, the ground must have rumbled as I rushed over there, at least for the little boy who knocked my kid down. He must have felt that way. You know, I got down on their level, and, and I looked at him, and there must have been just fire in my eyes the way he looked at me. And I said, it is not okay to push and shove and knock other kids down. And he just kind of nodded. I think I got through to him. And, and I looked at Julie, and I said, baby, this is not okay. We're not going to hoard the brochures. We're going to put these back on the rack, and we're going to walk away. Come on, let's go. So this was my kid. You know, she was in trouble. And so I could do nothing but rush in there and try to preserve and protect her and restore her. I, sh- I share that story with, with you not because it was just kind of a defining moment for me as a father, but because I think it is a picture of a God who's zealously committed to his people that he loves, that he created, that he cares for, and he wants to preserve them. And as we see in Genesis 3, he enters the mess, promises our deliverance. The power of Satan, our spiritual enemy, would be disarmed and he would be crushed underneath the foot of Jesus. So the coming of Jesus shows us that God keeps his promise. Even in our mess, God promises our deliverance. In a moment, we're going to take communion here. And in this meal that we'll receive, we celebrate that Jesus came And we celebrate that he fulfilled the promise of God to come and to crush the head of the serpent. Because he, in in his death and in his resurrection and the cross and this meal that we celebrate, he won the decisive victory. And he secured for us freedom and forgiveness of sins. Let's pray. Lord, we we honor you. We thank you, God, that you came, that you crushed the head of of the serpent, our spiritual enemy, Satan, that you have won the decisive victory over him, God. So we pray that as we take this meal, we would have gratitude for you, Lord, and that you would fill us with new wonder about what you've done and accomplished for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand up. We're going to take communion together to respond to the Lord.